Welcome to the Great Loop Radio Podcast, brought to you by America's Great Loop Cruisers Association. We're dedicated to sharing Great Loop information and inspiration with those actively cruising, planning for, or dreaming about a Great Loop adventure. I'm Kim Russo, the director of AGLCA. Today, we're continuing our series, which we like to do about once a month, on the story of our Great Loop. So I will be joined by Chris and Roger, who did the Great Loop aboard their main ship, 400. And before I bring them into the conversation, as I usually do, I would like to just take a moment to recognize and thank our Admiral sponsors, who support AGLCA at the highest level. They are Curtis Stokes & Associates, Great Loop Yacht Sales, Passage Maker Trawler Fest, Skipper Bob Publications, and Waterway Guide Media. As always, we encourage our listeners and viewers to support these businesses that support the Great Loop. And with the business completed, I would like to go ahead and officially welcome Chris and Roger to Great Loop Radio. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to to find out a little bit more about your Great Loop adventure. Um, so let's start with talking a little bit about the two of you and why you decided to do the Great Loop, because it sounds like you've had some other great adventures out there. Um, so tell us how this all came to pass. Um, well, Roger and I were um, very close to retiring, and we figured that uh, retiring to a major project would be a good transition. Um, we do like to travel. We've had some fairly extensive experiences before, and it had been quite a while since we had had a big adventure. And we also really wanted to see um, more of the U.S. And then we heard about this thing called the Loop, and we thought to ourselves that that's not possible. And we got out a map and started looking and it was like, hmm, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's possible. Mm -hmm. So some of your other adventures, I know you were Peace Corps volunteers, spent some time in Africa, some time in Italy and Tanzania. How does something like the Great Loop compare to those types of other amazing adventures you've had? Well, this was really a all in adventure. Uh, I guess Peace Corps was a two-year uh, stint, but uh, this was, we rented our dirt home, as we call it, and moved aboard, and this is going to be life. So we wanted to do something that was all in. So that was a little bit beyond even some of our previous adventures, but we felt with retirement, it finally enabled us to do something like this. Mm -hmm. Did you have... I think I would... Oh, yeah, go ahead, too. I think, um, especially overseas travel is often about where you are going and don't get me wrong, the loop is very much about where you are going, but the loop um, is really all about the people. You, you hate to sound cliche, but um, really, as soon as we were on our boat and put our burgie up, somebody came over and introduced themselves and asked us about boat cards, and we didn't know what those were. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and, and it just snowballs mm -hmm. from there. So it is definitely about where you go and what you get to see, but it truly is all about the people. Yeah. Did you have boating experience before you decided to give the loop a try? Not at all. For a, for a wedding anniversary, we gave ourselves a one-week trawler school down in Cape Coral, Florida. We thought maybe we should try a little bit, taste this boat adventure kind of thing before we buy a boat. And that mm -hmm. went really well for us. And I guess just as pandemic was hitting is when we had branded our house out. So we had to go, we managed to find a boat. And after we did, we found um, our main ship, um, had it moved to Bradenton, Florida. And from there we hired a captain with professional captains like three times. 
three different times and our our um boat broker is also a professional captain and we worked mm -hmm. um with her and i think it was very beneficial that our if you will our training um happened incrementally um it was with different people different people mm -hmm. highlight different things so you learn different things um since we we both pilot though roger ended up being captain for me i found it useful that all of our training captains were not men you know we also had mm -hmm. a, a you know female training captain, captain. Mm -hmm. and you know i'd also say doing things um, that it doesn't also all have to be on the boat we also took some classes and we certainly um, availed ourselves of the uh sponsors and you know different businesses that are um active within aglca with with curtis stokes and charity mm -hmm. gary we interacted with michael um captains you know captains chris There's and Elise. other sponsors mm -hmm. they so, were very yeah. very helpful so that helped us overcome that initial lack of confidence what do we know about boats well we've learned enough that we're willing to start and then we'll <laughs> mm -hmm. figure it out day by day now, did you do most of that training before you actually began the loop, you know, after you were living aboard, but before you actually really in earnest decided, okay, we're, we're officially starting? Other than the week-long um, trawler school before we got mm -hmm. the boat, all the other training was on our boat, which was also helpful because then we were working on the boat we would live on. And right. So we, uh, we moved aboard in November of 2020, Yes. and we started the loop in January of 2021. We had about three months with mm -hmm training and familiarization and taking her out and getting comfortable. Great. So let, let's go ahead and talk about your main ship a little bit. Tell us why she was the perfect boat for your loop. <laughs> um, there were many reasons uh, we loved our, our main ship, um, other than the fact that she was red. Um, really, what, what we loved about her was um, safety in locking and docking. Um, the main ship 400 has gunnels almost all the way around and, you know, an additional railing. And so it is almost impossible to, you know, fall overboard while reaching, grabbing, you know, in rain, wind, waves. Um, also, we really wanted, we wanted a boat that had an upper helm and a lower helm. Um, the main ship that we had had full-size steps going up to the upper helm, which, um, we thought was important. Um, also then the size of the boat. Um, our boat was, if you will, she was just big enough that we were never frightened. We knew she was far more capable, you know, than, than we were, but we never felt like, if you will, that the boat was in over its head. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the other thing is too, uh, that particular boat, we had a shallow enough draft and we could easily drop our, our mast um, with, 30 minutes, we could drop our bimini. And so really, we could also go really anywhere we wanted to go. Um, we, we would sometimes be the big boat with a bunch of little boats because, you know, we could get, we could make our air draft, you know, quite, quite low. Um, so I would say those, those were the main reasons. I'll throw one more in since I'm an engineer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Our main ship had twin engines. And when it came to docking in some, uh, uh, you can't avoid once in a while you're docking or locking in some unfavorable conditions. Having mm -hmm. twin engines was very, very helpful to me as a, as a captain in those moments. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely helps with the maneuverability. Um, did your main ship also have uh, bow or stern thrusters? We had a bow thruster. Since we had mm -hmm. twin engines, there was no stern thruster. But one other feature our, our main ship had came with it. I don't think we would have installed it, but I think Chris would attest it was worthwhile. There was an onboard washer dryer. 
Nice. <laughs> that was very nice. <laughs> that is nice. <laughs> um, so the other uh, a favorite thing that since I have seen your boat, um, you mentioned that it's red, which is kind of unique. Um, and because of that, it's very noticeable and distinctive. Was that kind of a um, an option for mainship or was that added by someone or by you later on? Our understanding is that that was a color that, that mm -hmm. main ships were, were built. It's, it's a claret red hull. Mm -hmm. um, they still make the color. So um, when you have the inevitable ding, you can cover it up. <laughs> um, we were teased a lot. Some friends of ours, you know, actually quite a few folks said, you do realize there are only two colors of boats, white and stupid. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's hard to keep that red shiny and clean but still we're, we're glad to have it. it turned a lot of heads yeah and i think um i want to say we were in canada when we last saw it but um the new owners after you sold it were bringing her home so it still had the betty gale name um although i believe they have since changed it um but michael saw it first and said there's betty gale and i was like are you sure <laughs> i thought they were done with the loop and he said no i know that's the boat <laughs> <laughs> it's red looking at it um so yeah it's it just a uh, beautiful and and since main ship is the most um frequent loop completer these days as a as a boat um make um it is nice that you had one that was a little distinctive um they're all beautiful boats but the red just like you said it really stands out um anything else you would want to add about the boat itself um we get you know we've covered kind of the engines and things like that we get lots of questions about that um any any other specifications? Uh, the, the other advantage I think they had with that boat, it was a 2006, as we talked about in 2020. It is getting more difficult to find boat insurance if a boat is more than 20 years old. And Absolutely. so that was a factor for us when we purchased our uh, our buyer broker advisors. We had narrowed down the purchase down to two boats, this one and the other one, which was exactly 20 years old, or maybe mm -hmm. even a little older. And we were advised, you might want to consider exit strategy should you ever want to sell the boat. And that actually became pretty important because um, boats that are more than 20 years, there's fewer and fewer insurance carriers and that are willing to take on that risk. So we were fortunate in that regard. Yeah, so true. And that's great advice that you got from the broker um, because yes, the even just for you buying, you might get insurance, but for the exit strategy, that is super important. Go ahead, Chris. I was going to say, the other thing, too, is that particular boat has a very decent galley. Mm -hmm. And when you are truly going to be living aboard um, and then you start getting into areas where you do need to anchor more or where, you know, you're on walls more, you know, restaurants are not always an, an option. And mm -hmm. so having the having, you know, truly having a boat that has a galley, we were on some lovely boats but I, that were originally probably built to be, you know, kind of weekend fun yes. boats, not necessarily live on them boats. Right. And those folks would come look at our boat and they were like, oh my gosh, you know, you've got a small stovetop and an mm -hmm. oven and you actually have counter space. Mm -hmm. So that's, if you, if you like to cook and you really do plan, like, you know, Roger said, we lived on board. We didn't stop every few months and, and go home. So if you really do plan to live on board, I think that's something to contemplate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, no, absolutely. And you're right. A lot of boats do seem like they were not built with true live aboard in mind. You know, they're good for uh, maybe a week <laughs> with what you can do in the galley and things like that. So that is another nice thing about the main ships, which, and all the things you mentioned are part of what makes them such popular make for the Great Loop. You mentioned, um, you know, anchoring, and there's some places where you're anchoring more. There aren't restaurants available. Tell us a little bit about... Um, 
you know, kind of your general cruising preferences? Or were you typically pulling into marinas when you could? Did you prefer to anchor? Um, you know, how many miles per day? What speed did you typically cruise? Those kind of um, details about your choices that have an impact on how long it takes to loop and the costs and all those types of things. So we were on our boat just about two years and really we used marinas predominantly. In mm -hmm. fact, the first year when we did the loop, we took us, what, 301 days mm -hmm. and 157 were travel days. Um, mm -hmm. Most of those nights were spent in marinas. I want to say like 250 or so were actually mm -hmm. marinas. Maybe 50 were at anchor on three walls and maybe half a dozen on uh, mooring balls. And in part, that became because, well, we were new boaters. And we felt certainly that first year in the first months, we felt safer coming into a marina. Um, secondly, uh, and very importantly, just as importantly, um, the social aspect of doing the loop. If you're at anchor, it can be beautiful places to anchor and but you're usually by yourself. You come into a marina, you'll see the other AGLCA burgies there. You've already got friends waiting for you. Let's, you know, once you get the boat washed and you got your maintenance done, then let's do docktails or what have you. So a mm -hmm. um, big social aspect or a big aspect of the loop is doing the, the social socializing and being marinas allowed us to do that. The second year, part of it had to do with weather, but also part of it had to do with our greater self-confidence. We did anchor more and use mooring bowls more the second year, particularly mm -hmm. as you, uh, the second year we went up into Canada. We were not able to do that because the border was closed due to COVID the first year. But there were a lot of free walls and so on. So we were just able to do um, a little more um, cost saving by not hitting the marinas quite so often, which helped us at the cost of high fuel that second year. Right. <laughs> yes. So how many miles did you typical typically travel per day? And what was your favored cruising speed? Because the main ship can go a little bit faster than some trawlers. We, um, in general, our, our preferred travel day would be four to five hours, and we would probably go 40 to 50 miles. Um, mm -hmm. We like to start early in the day and, and come in early. Um, obviously, sometimes, you know, weather depending or, or where you are, that would change. Um, the second year, we slowed down, actually, you know, for a, a couple of reasons. Sometimes it seemed like we were more in areas where there was speed restriction. Um, but then also carefully tracking the fuel economy. That's You'll right. remember the exact numbers. We slowed down a little bit and we gained a whole yeah. lot in terms of fuel economy. We, what, slowed, mm -hmm. we slowed our speed by 12%, but we reduced our fuel consumption by 34%. That was yeah. huge. So we're just a little more patient, saved us a lot of money. Yeah. So we and do you recall like eight, about eight miles an hour? Eight to nine miles an hour. Would be our average. Mm -hmm. And that was the more fuel efficient speed or was that before you slowed down? Um, we slowed down. That was the slowed down speed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Otherwise we were running 10 and a half the first year, but yeah. fuel, you get diesel at two and a half dollars a gallon, not anymore. <laughs> yeah, big changes during that second year for sure. Um, and it is though awfully nice when you find out you know a small adjustment of you know maybe two miles per hour or something results in that much of a fuel savings we looked for that sweet spot for quite some time and never quite found it <laughs> um but it doesn't hurt to try is it was what i always right. figure um one of the things you mentioned in in kind of your pre-interview was um the physicality of the trip the physicality of living on a boat was a little bit more so than you thought explain what you meant by that well, okay, I would say I, we tend to think of ourselves as being fairly in shape folks. We walk, we hike, we bike, we do yoga. 
Um, and so it was like, okay, we know the boat moves, you know, more obviously than, than a house, but you know, it's like, we got this. Um, but it is, I don't know, it's, it's constant. It's, it's not in a, in a bad way, but I think that is something to think about. Sometimes people get really caught up in, I need to have all these things in place before I can, you know, take off on, on the trip. And I would say one thing to, to keep in mind is while you're, you're physically able to do things, you, you want to think about that. You know, we were, um, our dinghy was a pulley system. Again, it, on one hand, it was easy, but it's very physical, you know, just to lower the, lower the dinghy, um, sure. put, put the dinghy back up. Um, we made the decision. Roger was the captain. I managed the lines. You're going to manage the lines. You need to learn, you know, to manage the lines and, and move around. You need to be able sometimes to throw a line. It's preferable to hand it to somebody, mm -hmm. but um, sometimes you're winging it for all your worth. Um, <laughs> you know, anchoring. It's just Pulling, hoisting, trying to heave on a mooring ball. Chris is out on the bow. She's trying to hook a the a painter line and then pull us in. Um, from my standpoint, I've maintained all the systems. And, and if you're a do-it-yourselfer, um, you better start working on your, I called it boat yoga, because mm -hmm. I'd be down in the engine room and to get back behind those engines between the fuel tank and so on, I'd get in some positions. I didn't know if I was coming back out of that engine. <laughs> um, but it was very demanding in that that respect, the amount of um, effort, physical effort it took actually just to maintain it. So I suppose if I had a, we had a bigger budget, I wouldn't have to do quite so much, but that's not our style. But, um, but there was a physical aspect to it and it's worth considering if, um, as part of the planning process when you're gonna do the, uh, you're gonna do the loop. Yeah, for sure. It is a, a physical lifestyle. And in, in addition to the things that you mentioned, um, you know, you're arriving places without a car. So you're typically walking or biking or doing something more active to just do your everyday kind of life things. So um, most people do find it a pretty active lifestyle and um, great way to keep healthy. Um, let's take a quick break here and play some messages from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about some of those other kind of differences between your expectations of the trip and the reality. So we'll be back in a moment. Green Turtle Bay Marina and Resort has consistently been voted a must-stop by loopers. It has earned the coveted five-anchor designation from Quimby's Cruising Guide. This full-service marina features over 450 slips. They are located at mile marker 31.5 on the scenic Cumberland River. Green Turtle Bay is a proud commander sponsor of AGLCA, so join them and find your waterway of life. Good morning, loopers. Many of you are probably already cruising in southeastern waters, and that is where the Salty Southeast Cruisers Net focuses all of its efforts to help you enjoy your time on the water. So as you prepare for the next leg of your journey, and as your resource for accurate, timely, and useful information, we want to invite you to use and add your knowledge to the wealth of information that's available through the Cruisers Net in its directories for marinas, bridges, and anchorages as well as the latest fuel prices in your area. Our mission of Cruisers Helping Cruisers, may we invite you to help those following in your wake by sharing with us your cruising experiences. Thank you. Have a great day. We're back on the Great Loop Radio podcast. My guests today are Chris and Roger. They are sharing the story of their Great Loop adventure aboard their main ship 400, the Betty Gale. 
Um, we were kind of talking about the differences between what your expectations were going into this trip versus the reality. Um, and one of the things that you mentioned you really needed to embrace and comes to terms with was the fact that you are not in charge. And for a lot of us, you know, leaving um, who retire and then start the loop, that that can be a big adjustment. So tell us a little bit about, you know, how that message was sent to you and received that you were no longer in charge here. Um Mother Nature is in charge. A lot of the times uh, we had, we were never, as Chris and I mentioned earlier in the interviews, uh, we were never fearful for the boat itself or even our own safety. But there were times where, well, we wanted to go. In fact, the day we wanted to leave for the start the loop was January 27th. It was to be a full moon, very auspicious. We were going to leave Bradenton and there was a group of boaters at Bradenton going to come down and see us off. There was fog that morning. And it was going to lift and then it didn't lift and it's going to lift. Should we go? And we made finally made a decision. We're going to wait. We're going to wait the two days until it's clear on Friday. And so we left two days later. Um, frankly, we were, we were pretty proud of ourselves where all the buildup to get ready. Uh, we're going to leave on this day. And then we pulled the plug and said, no, it's not safe. So Mother Nature's not ready for us. We'll wait. And we had a glorious day on Friday. So it was prudent for us to, uh, to learn that lesson very early on in the loop. Pay attention and make decisions based on what the weather allows you to do. Yeah, and that that shows that the training you got beforehand obviously had an impact on you because that is really probably the biggest mistake we see inexperienced loopers make is choosing to travel on a day that you might have been better off staying put. So I'm glad that you learned that early on and didn't have any, hopefully not any horrible experiences with that. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about like what were some of the highlights of your trip? We already mentioned one, and that's meeting people and, yeah. and how mm -hmm. important it is to have this in our background, our gold bergie. If you got a bergie, you've mm -hmm. got friends. As soon as you <laughs> pull in the marina, people away. Um, uh, I think um, history, there's history to be explored. We're from the Midwest originally. We lived in Arizona, in the Southwest for 30 plus years before we did this loop adventure. There is so much history to be learned. And even if you're not a history buff, you're going to be encountered with it. It's just fascinating of what you cruise through and what you can learn along the way from people, from museums, from uh, just seeing things firsthand. So that was a big highlight for me anyway as part of the trip. I think also just allowing yourself, obviously you need to have a sense of where you want to go, a sense of timing, you know, follow the seasons. Um, so yes, there are things that you need to be aware of, but to just allow yourself to kind of be seduced by the process and just, you know, really begin to enjoy, you know, planning, you know, enjoy being out on the water and, you know, enjoy all the aspects of it. And I think we had mentioned we were maybe halfway around and it was a glorious morning on Lake Huron. And we said, you know what, we, we should go, we may not go all the way around, but, but we want to keep going when we get home. You know, we made that decision and talked to the people who were renting our house and they said, yeah, we're up for another year. So, you know, we didn't know exactly what we were going to do, but, you know, kind of allow yourself to fall in love with the process, the places, the people. Um, try not to get too caught up in, you know, we want to go here, we want to go here, we want to go here. I think it's good, um, for example, on the Chesapeake Bay, we came up with all these places that it would be wonderful to stop. And then if you will, we, uh, one of our favorite quotes is proceed as the way opens. And, you know, we went where the weather allowed and there were just, you know, 
So some places uh, we didn't Never did see. Uh, now, now the second year, if you you know if you give yourself mm -hmm. the gift of um, more than once more around, around, then you mm -hmm. can stop in and see places that the weather didn't allow the first time. Um, and it's also fun to pull into places you've been before because instead of being really concerned about the current or the tide or that, you know, you need to pay attention, but you know, you can enjoy it a little more the second time around. Yeah. One of the things that you said that I, I just absolutely loved is that you quickly learned that living and traveling on a boat isn't about what you can do without rather it's a lesson in how little you need to be completely content. That's really profound. I think, um, tell us about how you arrived at that, at that thought. Well, it's, I think it, it's very apt because if you look at the experience as what you live without, then it kind of implies deprivation. Oh, mm -hmm. I'm not having this. I'm not doing that. I don't have this with us. But if it's, yeah, but how, how much do you really need to be happy is mm -hmm. completely opposite uh, way of viewing things. That became very, very apparent. When we first moved aboard, we thought, how do, do we have enough clothes on board? Do we have enough this on board? And finally came to realization I need, too much. <laughs> I need two t-shirts, a pair of shorts, and a good pair of boat shoes, and everything else is extraneous. And those clothes just laid in the locker for the whole two years. We never used them. I think the, um, it, it's a, turns on its head, I think, a lot of what we get in life these are days where you possess and get more and acquire more, but on a boat, there's, there's a discouragement to uh, take on too many things. You got to put it somewhere on the boat. But Learning to uh, be content with what you have was, was, I think, a very positive highlight, really, as part of the trip. Yeah, well, and I don't know that I've heard somebody phrase it quite the way you did before. I've certainly heard that sentiment before from loopers. Um, and, you know, usually it involves the stuff because there is only so much room on a boat. And, you know, everybody seems to generally come to the conclusion that they took way too much. And I had heard that from countless people. <laughs> and I still took way too much i mean um and, and you're right you know the top two t-shirts in the drawer are the ones that get used and the rest just sit lower on the pile and you wash them and put them back in and you start from the top again um but so yeah it really is you know simplified um no one cares if you're wearing the same t-shirt you wore yesterday when you're out here on the loop um but like i said i just i really loved the way you put that because the way you explained it it kind of goes beyond just the stuff which is where most of us tend to focus um, but it really just is a simplified way that people are finding they can be content with what they can fit on the boat and have on the boat. Um, you know, you mentioned that you, you both love to cook. And while you had a galley that was larger than many, um, still a challenge for two people to cook. So how did you kind of overcome that? Just split the chores up, you know, it, and that goes for all the kind of the boat, the boat chores. That, that, I, that was one um one chore where we we both cooked, but we decided we like to cook together, and we mm -hmm. just you can't really cook together. So yeah. you know, I, you know, one's in charge one night, one's in charge the other night. Uh, you know, sometimes be practical. Oh, you're going to change the oil today. You know, I'll make you dinner because <laughs> I don't want to change the oil. Um, that sounds you know, like so, a fair trade off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you just but but I mean it's you know it's kind of surprising you'll. You hear people say, people, what is it like to eat on the loop? You know, how do you eat? Um, and I remember hearing this and it, I thought, well, there's no way this is going to work. You know, but people say you eat on the boat very much like you eat at home. And meaning, meaning but, but you do. And so, you know, we did. We cooked quite a bit. Um, we had an oven. Roger likes to make bread. That's one of his hobbies. Um, we actually made bread on the boat. Um, you know, we figured out how to make pizza on the boat. We figured out, you know, you have 
um, you figure out all kinds of things when you get stuck somewhere for a week that you didn't plan on. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and speaking of planning, you descri- both describe yourselves as planners and you kind of shared a, a, you know, a pretty detailed look at how you do your route planning. Um, so, you know, share some of those details, because I do think it's important, particularly for people who are new to boating, um, that you did put this level of thought into it. Um, and I think it's a great way to feel prepared each and every day, but also to put um, to really get the most out of the trip because you've planned where you're going. Um, keeping in mind that Mother Nature is in charge, not you. But tell us a little bit about, you know, kind of your daily cruise planning process. Well, we uh like to hike. And so we came to the boating with a, a, a preference, if you will, for paper charts and maps. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that's heresy in this day of technological advancement, but uh, we mm-hmm. had charts of the entire loop. And it cost a bit of money. Um, but we also had an avionics and aqua maps and electronic stuff. But we always, the day before, uh, before you do it before co- cocktails, not after cocktails. <laughs> we, plan our, we plan our destination. We go through it on paper very carefully. What are the potential hazards along the way are the uh atons going to switch colors because of the channel changes or something like that but we thoroughly scope the route we're going to do and we mark it on the paper charts then we go through uh, electronically we put it into an avionics we study that route we then go to waterway guide online and look are there any alerts are there any alerts from the corps of engineers what all is going on um, we might even ping a looper if we're traveling with what are you seeing in your planning um, they were very, very thorough in our planning. And that, again, as I mentioned earlier in the interview, it helped us overcome this uh, novitiate's approach to uh, boating. So by mm-hmm. the time we actually fired up the engines and Chris was ready to throw the lines and we were to leave the slip, we actually had done the route for the day probably three or four times. We'd done it on paper. We'd done it electronically. We, we, we know what to expect. We've got bailout points. And uh, some folks do it. Actually, probably most folks aren't that meticulous in the route planning, but every day we started, by golly, we were confident we knew it, that we were prepared or as prepared as we could be. And it paid off for us many of And I think also um, by the important thing about doing that is it prepared both of us. um, Either one of us could navigate the boat you know, be the navigator or pilot the boat. We could interchange, you know, I need to go do this or, you know, when an alarm goes off on the boat and that needs to be investigated. Somebody's, okay, I can stop navigating. I can now pilot the boat. Roger can go down into the engine room and, you know, check out what's what's going on. You know, if you need, it just puts you in the position for you both to be interchangeable. You, you know, most days go fine, but when things go south, um, then it's not such a, a bad experience. I'll give you one example on uh, where that kind of planning really pays off is, uh, okay, we plan to get up and you're going to leave through lines at 5.30 in the morning. Well, maybe it's, there's fog or maybe there's something about the weather that we better hold off for two hours. Well, gosh, now the tides are different than what you had planned the night before, unless you anticipated. What if there's a two-hour delay and the tides are different? Well, we have to pick a different destination. So if you've done thorough planning, you can accommodate last minute changes like that without going into a panic. Yeah, and that's that's such a fantastic approach. It really shows that the training you got beforehand um, and, and you know probably your nature and your background also helped with all that. Um, but you're right, most days everything goes smoothly and some days it doesn't. And the small adjustments are a heck of a lot easier when you've got that kind of bailout plan or whatever. And there's, um, 
I don't know if you've ever come across Mario Vitone, but he is a boating safety expert, former um, Coast Guard rescue swimmer. And, you know, he preaches, you have to be prepared for that one bad day. And for most of us, uh, thankfully, that one bad day will never come. But if you're prepared for it, it can be the difference maker. And that's that's why I love that you're doing that kind of planning, because that's exactly what he's all about. He's been on our podcast before, too. Um, but that's exactly what, uh, you know, I fear loopers don't do enough of. Because it, it can be exhausting doing that for each and every day that you're moving the boat, but it's really, you know, very necessary for the comfort level and the safety level. So thank you for sharing how you do that. We do a very similar process, although we, we leave out the paper, <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, that, that is a personal choice and there's absolutely nothing wrong with having the paper. And I know lots of people who really like it for that big picture view where the two of you start, um, you know, to say, where in this big spectrum are we going and then break it down into the actual cruise for the day. Um, any final thoughts on advice you might give, you know, somebody who's kind of new to this idea and is considering whether it's something they should really try to take on. Final thoughts. Um, I think something that that's worth thinking about, again, don't get too wet to the idea, but to think through um, what kind of looper, you're you're going to be and and real and I think in thinking that through that really also helps you internalize that idea. Um, you know there is no the way to do the loop. Absolutely. And so to, to think of you know what, where you are in life, what you're comfortable with, what your family relationships or obligations are, and are you going to like I said we wanted to have an all-in adventure, and so we rented our house. Our boat was going to be primary, and we stressed you know to family and friends that. You know, we will check in with you, but you're probably not going to see that much of us because, you know, we're going to be very focused on the boat. We met people who took over 10 years to complete their loop. We met people who every few months, you know, had planned where they were going to stop and put their boat up for at least a month or maybe, you know, six weeks and go home and tend to business. So, you know, any, those are just some examples, any of those or anything in between, um, and then the other thing would be, you know, life does happen. Um, we wanted to go, you know, visit, you know, needed to go back and, and visit, you know, elderly parents and, and help a couple of times. And mm -hmm. that put us in the position of needing to stop in areas that we had not passed through before. And so we were able, you know, you put the question out on the forum, we're going to be stopping here. What ideas do people have? And it's amazing the information that you get and you find, you know, one or two people that are very helpful and that, and their information just makes a world of difference. And you you make arrangements and you handle that and and you move on. So, um, I guess all I would add to that, for for time's sake, to be brief, would be um, don't underestimate how much help is available from loopers. Um, when we were on the loop last day, we're at uh, uh, oh. just outside of Saint Petersburg, north of Saint Petersburg. And our main ship sprung a leak. This is at three in the afternoon, the day before Thanksgiving. Hydraulic and there's a hydraulic fluid in the upper helm. And it, it, a looper uh, saw our plea on AGL on the, on the forum and they came to our rescue and he came out and looked at it. He managed to call and get his mechanic out to look at it. Um, couldn't be fixed, but they said, you've got twin engines. What I would do is tape off the helm and just use your twin engines and take yourself back to Bradenton. So the last 31 miles um, from uh, Madeira Beach yeah. to Bradenton, across Tampa Bay, past St. Petersburg, were done without uh, 
the uh, ability to use our helm. All we had was mm-hmm. two sticks all the way up wow. the Manatee River to Bradenton. And that was all possible because of resources that are readily available from Hoopers and the AGLC network. So don't underestimate how much help and support there is out there. It is absolutely a fabulous group. There's a thread going on in the forum right now about loopers helping loopers that people have been contributing to. Um, so that that's always heartening to see. Um, Chris and Roger, thank you for sharing your adventure. It's been great catching up with you and we loved hearing the stories of your great loop. So thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. You're welcome. And to everyone who's watched or listened this week, thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Great Loop Radio podcast. Until then, safe cruising.